Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Morgan Jones Phillips. I did a call for a guy who uh, had uh, choked and died eating a falafel. That's not the funny part. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to give a shout out here. As you guys might know, if someone gives $25 or more to us per month on Patreon, we give them a little shout out. Now, Michael Simpson was so generous, he's giving us $50 per month, but he wrote in that he wanted us to give a shout out to his dear friend, Estelle. He says that Estelle introduced him to the podcast about a month or so ago. He says that the podcast has really helped her. And he says that sharing, listening to the podcast, and then sharing with one another how they felt about this or that story has been a remarkable way to spend time as friends. You know, it's really interesting. There are so many books now about how disconnected people feel, how-to books on how to get closer to loved ones in your life. So, It's really, really touching to me to hear that people find this show an amazing way to bond with friends and get closer. So thank you so much to Michael Simpson and his friend Estelle. And remember, if you want to help keep Risk running, it means the world to us. We really do depend a great deal on the help that we get from the fans who love what we do. You just go to patreon.com slash risk. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash risk. And you can give as little as a dollar a month, as much as any amount a month. And there's all sorts of bonus content. If you give $10 or more a month, you get these episodes without ads, like this one you're listening to right now. So go to patreon.com slash risk and help us out. Also, today's show is supported by Canna Pet. Go to canna-pet.com and use the code RISK at the checkout for 50% off your order. Everyone knows that dogs are a man's best friend. So what if I told you that you could make your best bud's life even better? That's where Canna Pet comes in. From tasty biscuits to oil and capsules, Canna Pet's all-natural and organic CBD pet supplements are your go-to if your pet is suffering from pain, allergies, cancer, anxiety, or seizures. Now, I know what you might be thinking, is this pot for pets? No, Canapet is made from industrial hemp, not marijuana. That means it contains CBD, not THC. So it won't get your pet high. Actually, there's zero psychoactive effects. This product is fully legal and vet recommended for dogs, cats, 
horses, and other animals. Canapet is a holistic alternative to pharmaceuticals, and no prescription is needed to purchase. You can order online at canna-pet.com with the code RISK for 50% off. For more information, visit canna-pet.com. That's C-A-N-N-A-pet.com. And don't forget to use the code RISK. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is The Smiths behind me now, because I just remembered that this song exists. We're calling this week's episode Unsettling. Three stories of people stuck in rather jarring situations. I am recording this right now from a hotel room in Salt Lake City. We had one hell of a show here the other night, but it too was a rather jarring experience. One of our storytellers was not allowed to enter the establishment because she was not 21 years old yet. And so we had to have her tell her story in the doorway (laughs) And, and have everyone turn in their seats to look at this person far off in the doorway. Quite a memorable experience. And I'm going to tell you guys something right now that I told the audience the other night as well. If you have ever even thought, if, if the thought has even ever crossed your mind, oh, I think I have a story that I could pitch to risk, do it. Do it! Pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. We are always looking. In fact, right now, if you have a scary story that might be good for our Halloween episode or a holiday story that might be good for our Christmas, Hanukkah, you know, end of December episode, pitch us right away and put in the subject line, hey, this is a scary story or a holiday story. Hey, I'll go even further than that. If you live near Los Angeles or near New York City and you think you might want to share a scary story in October at our live show in New York or at our live show in Los Angeles, let us know. Reach right out to me at kevin at risk-show.com and we might be able to put you up on stage in New York or Los Angeles telling a scary story or a holiday story because we're always especially looking for stories for those months, the October and December shows. Now we're going to start this week's episode with one of our favorites. This is Morgan Jones Phillips. He told this story the last time we were in Toronto. Morgan has this great book called The Emergency Monologues. You can find it on Amazon and other places where books are sold. He also performs The Emergency Monologues live on stage a lot. This is a particularly crazy story about how words in another language can be rather unsettling when heard by an English speaker's ears. Also, there was a little confusion about the way the story ended, so I'll come back on in the hosting segment afterwards and address that. Anyway, here is Morgan Jones Phillips with a story we call, What's in a Name? So I've uh, been a downtown paramedic for 13 years, 
And as is one of the occupational hazards with being a paramedic, I've seen uh, my share of terrible things. And people ask me, how can you do what you do dealing with grief and tragedy on a regular basis and not have it get to you? And the truth is you can't. But there are things that you can do for it. So I believe in order to maintain your own mental health, you need to have a strong safety net of friends and or family. Uh, You need to have a hobby that has nothing to do with first aid or EMS. And let me just say that as a storytelling comedian where the bulk of my material is based on being a paramedic, I skirt dangerously close to hypocrisy on this one. Uh, You have to have a sense of humor always, and that will manifest itself as a dark or twisted or morbid or sick sense of humor. I will come back to that, and I will talk to that a little more. And then uh, lastly, uh, oh my God, I should have only made three. (laughs) It's so funny, you know what, I thought I was going to forget hobby, and so I wrote hobby on my forearm. (laughs) Never occurred to me I was going to forget the last one. Absolutely a good sex life. Absolutely. That could start any time. Oh, oh my God. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. All right. Most importantly, you have to remind yourself, it's not my emergency. I'm not the one having an emergency. I'm there to help. No matter how bad the call goes, no matter what happens to the patient, even if the patient dies, all of my family are still sitting around the dinner table when I go home at the end of the day. So how bad could it really be? And now we come back to the inappropriate sense of humor. (laughs) Having this dark sense of humor is not something unique to paramedics. All uh, medical professionals share this. The uh, reason is because we deal with death and we deal with tragedy head on. We deal with it face to face. And so we have a great respect for it and we have a great understanding of what it means. And so sort of like in the same way that people from a certain race or cultural background can tell jokes about their own race or cultural background because they know the truth. They understand the truth behind what they're saying and they know that a joke is just a joke. It's the same thing with paramedics. We don't need to explain a lot of the feelings behind a joke. So, example. I had a patient, elderly woman, and we were going to the hospital. And she had like abdo pain and it was like, three out of 10. It was very mild abdo pain. She was vitally stable. She walked to the stretcher. We're on our way to the hospital. And she says, can you just help me sit up, please? And I look and I see that she's kind of slumped down in the stretcher. And I say, sure. And so I get behind her and I kind of lift her up in the stretcher. And so she's in a better position now. She smiles at me. She looks me in the eye. She says, thank you. And then she slumps over dead. Thank you for laughing. (laughs) So the last words that she had on earth were thank you to me for possibly killing her. (laughs) Now I can tell this to another paramedic or a risk audience and they aren't afraid to laugh because they know the truth. They know what it feels like to have someone die in front of you. They've been there before. So they know that when it happened, I wasn't laughing. They know that when it happened, I was going, fuck, 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 fuck. They know that I was doing CPR, that I was attempting to defibrillate, that I was doing everything I could to try and bring this woman back to life. They know that I was feeling guilt and racked with wondering if I could have done something to have prevented this, if I could have seen what did I miss that I didn't see coming. But I'll tell you, because I've thought about this, there's nothing I could have done differently. The only thing I could have done was possibly not lift her up in her seat, and this is how it would have gone. She would have said, can you help me up, sit up, please? And if I had said, no, I'm not going to help you sit up, because if I do, you might die. (laughs) 
then she would have looked up at me, and she would have had a frown on her face, and she would have said, well, you're not very nice. That's not a very nice thing for you to say. And then she would have died anyway. (laughs) But now she would have died mad at me and possibly haunting me forever. (laughs) So really, there's nothing I could have done. Now, This morbid sense of humor is not something exclusive to medical people. This is something that is also shared by all emergency workers, police, fire, ambulance, military. And example, I did a call for a guy who uh, had uh, choked and died eating a falafel. That's not the funny part. (laughs) So he's choked, dead, falafel. You are a great audience. (laughs) Cop comes over afterwards, says, yep, pretty clear case of homicide. (laughs) I mean, that's amazing. That's that's a once in a lifetime joke. That's amazing. Like, had he been like sitting by the police scanner listening for a Lebanese falafel house fatality just so he could use that? Amazing. Another time, did a call, uh, it was a car accident, a couple of minivans, and it was and it looked kind of bad, and I arrive, and uh, the, you know, the other crews, other people are already there, and I, you know, as I'm approaching the scene, I say, you know, how bad is it? And one of the guys on scene, he uh, points to one of the vans, and the rear windshield has those uh, stick people decals of the families, and he says, well, we're not going to be needing all those stickers. So I tell you all of this so you don't think I'm a complete asshole when I tell you the actual story. (laughs) So it's a night shift, and my partner at the time, Amanda, and I are working together, and we get a call to a uh, residence for a, uh, comes in as Delta Hemorrhage Life Status Questionable Caller Refusing to Approach Patient. Now, Delta is what we call uh, your high-acuity lights and sirens, real emergency. A hemorrhage, someone is bleeding somewhere. Life status questionable means that the caller uh, thinks that the patient is dead. The caller refusing to approach the patient uh, basically means that. For whatever reason, they will not go near the patient. So, you know, they will not, like, initiate CPR or whatever it is. They will not go near. Now, generally speaking, life status questionable and caller refusing to approach patient is reserved for hobos in parks. And people who have a cell phone see someone sleeping on a bench, call 911, but are like, I'm not going to go check on them. Hobos are icky. But because it is a residence, because we're in someone's home, then, you know, we figure that's probably not the case. So it's a pretty average neighborhood. It's not especially fancy. It's not especially run down. And we're greeted by a Chinese woman in her mid-50s. And she's hysterical. And she's yelling, you know, come, come, come. And, And so we go inside. And she guides us down to the basement. And it's an unfinished basement. And so there's wooden stairs, you know, no railing. And it's a cement floor. And there's joists that are all visible. It's exposed wiring through it. There's a couple of bare light bulbs. It smells kind of dusty. And, and it's clearly just used for, for storage because there's just a lot of shelves, a lot of bins, a lot of cardboard boxes and stuff like that. Anyway, and so she guides us through all of this to the back. And in the back, she points to a room and we open the door and it's a bathroom. In the bathtub... There is a man, approximately 25 years old, and the bathtub is filled with uh, water, uh, mostly blood. And so it is like fourth season Dexter. Like it's like right, like blood, thick, bloody water up to the guy's neck. I look at him and he appears to be very, very dead. Now, very, very dead is what we call so dead that there's nothing you can do for them and there's no way to help them. And basically, it's a crime scene and you just have to leave. As opposed to mostly dead. Mostly dead is where, you know, we can work with that. We can, you know, we, <laughs> you know, we, have, we have drugs and we have defibrillators and we have stuff that we can do, right? But, uh, but, but very, very dead is beyond help. 
And there's a few ways to check to see if someone is very, very dead. And one of them is uh, checking for rigor mortis. And so that is uh, where, you know, the body stiffens, right? That's where the expression of stiff comes from. Not a stiffy, but stiff. (laughs) So for me to do this, I'm going to have to reach my hand into the bloody water to lift his hand up to see if it's stiff. Now... I have to do this because obviously I don't want to uh, think he's very, very dead, walk away, and then uh, somewhere uh, later during the police investigation, you hear a moan from the bathroom because he was actually kind of alive. So I really need to confirm that he's very, very dead. So I have to do this. Uh, But of course, I am super scared to do this. And there's two reasons that I am super scared. One of them is I'm afraid that when I reach in and grab onto his hand, that it will turn out that he's not actually dead and his eyes will open. and, (laughs) And there's a very high probability that I will shit myself. Like, I can live with being the guy who thought a not-dead guy was very, very dead, but I can't live with being the guy who shot himself at a call. So anyways, that's the one thing that I'm concerned about, is that he'll be alive and scare me. And the second thing that I'm worried about is that he is dead, but he's undead. And he's actually a zombie. And when I lift up his hand, he grabs me with the other hand, pulls me into the tub, and eats me. So I'm uh, concerned for both these things. So what I do is I ask my partner, Amanda, if she will hold my hand while I do it. Now, there's two reasons that I want her to hold my hand. One is so, just in case it is a zombie and he pulls me into the tub, she's already holding my hand to pull me back out again. And two, because when you're doing something very scary, it's nice to hold someone's hand. So I've got Amanda in my left hand, and I reach into the water, I lift up the patient's other hand, and just as I'm holding hands with both of them, a cop walks in. And so the cop sees me in this bizarre seance position. There's this, this little semicircle. Now, to the cop's credit, he just looks in, sees me holding one hand of my partner and the other hand of a bloody corpse, and all he says is, whatever turns you on. And, <laughs> and then he walks out again. That was it. He walks out again, just leaving me with this horrific ring around the rosy scene. Anyway, the good news, bad news situation is that it is stiff, and he is very, very dead, and it is a crime scene, so uh, there's nothing more for me to do but back out of the room slowly and preserve evidence while the police do their thing and investigate, because of course it does look like suicide, but if anyone has seen the fourth season of Dexter, then you know that maybe it wasn't. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Posthumous spoiler alert. So now what I have to do is I have two jobs now. Because I am the medical authority on scene, it's my job to inform the family of the death. So that's the one thing I have to do. And the second thing I have to do is I have to call the coroner and I have to tell the coroner that there's been a death in a house. I I go up to meet the family. And the woman who let us in initially turns out was the patient's mother. Of course, we weren't the first person that she called when she found her son, and so other family are all there. And so there's brothers and sisters and other family members that I don't know, but there's like maybe six, eight, ten people there. So they're all there, and I have to deliver the death notification. And this is hard. I I honestly don't feel much when people are dead. Dead people are dead. But I do have a harder time with the living who are dealing with the grief of the death. And so death notifications are are hard at the best of times. So I explain to them what's happening now, that the police are doing an investigation, that it most likely appears to be suicide, but we want to rule out anything else. And and so I explain all of this. And now I have to gather information to call the coroner. So basically I need, you know, name, birthday, brief medical history, and, you know, kind of when the last time they saw him alive and if he had been acting peculiar or anything. 
I've found that the best way to do this is simply to ask for a piece of ID rather than awkwardly have them try to explain how to spell names and things like that. So I ask for a driver's license. The mother gives it to me. And so I've just finished explaining to them how you know, that her son is dead. And the family are all gathered around and they're all standing facing me. And she hands me his driver's license and the name on it says, fuck you, ho. And I'm looking at the card that says, fuck you, ho, on it. And I'm imagining little fuck you going to school. And I'm picturing little fuck you on the first day of class when the teachers reading out the attendance and they're like, okay, uh, uh, John Harper, Lukey Pankyu, and fuck you. (laughs) I'm picturing a substitute teacher coming into the class and being like, uh, uh, yes, and you little boy, your name? Fuck you, man. And the thing is, is at this point, I can't stop my brain. So now I'm thinking about what he does for a living. And I'm imagining like him going for a job interview, them being like, hello, Mr. Ho. And him being like, please, fuck you. (laughs) You know, I'm imagining him being like a bank manager or something and sitting at a desk with a placard with his name on it and people coming in to ask for a loan and just seeing fuck you, Ho, written on a... (laughs) You know, I'm thinking of all this stuff and I'm just starting to lose it. I'm starting to crack a smile and I'm like, oh God, please no, please not now, not now, not here, not in front of all these people. Please no, please no, but I can't help it. And so I bring a hand up over my face to try and like, just just to cover it up. But the problem is, is as soon as I've done that, now I've kind of given myself permission to smile and that's a mistake. And so now I've got my face, I've got a hand covered, and my mind won't stop. I keep thinking of things. I'm imagining him being on sports teams with like, fuck you, ho, written across the back of his thing. I'm I'm imagining, what if he's really good at sports? What if he makes it to the NHL? And I'm just imagining like, for the Toronto Maple Leafs, number 69, fuck you, ho! I can't stop this in my mind. And so I think, oh my God, I'm going to lose it. And so my partner sees this and she knows how hard death notifications are and she knows how I have a hard time with it. And so she thinks that I have just broken down in tears right now. And so my partner comes over to check on me and she's like, Morgan, are you okay? And I'm like, I'll be okay. And then I take the card out. And I hand it to her. And I wait for her reaction. Now, just uh, I have to be honest, a full disclosure on the story, because of patient confidentiality and because of uh, professionalism, uh, all of you have to die tonight. No. Um, but because of all of these things, obviously, I cannot use the uh, person's real name. But I will just say that the adage that truth is stranger than fiction and you can't make this shit up applies because I could not think of a better name than the real one from that day. But I tried. Thank you. The name game. Shirley, 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 Bo Burley, Bo Nana, Fanna, Bo Furley, Fee, Fine, Mo Merley. Shirley. Lincoln, 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 Bo Bingen, Bo Nana, Say the name again with an epic third name, then a feet, fire and a moat. 
This is Risk, and this, of course, is Shirley Ellis with the name game. A lot of people assume that this song comes from a children's show or something like that. No, not at all. This song went to number three on the Billboard charts in 1965. And, of course, we just heard from Morgan Jones Phillips. Now, I wanted to put a hosting segment here after his story so I could explain something. Some people were confused by the way he worded things in the very end. Some people think he used the man's real name in the story. No, he did not. He made up a fake name, but was trying to explain that he did not manage to come up with even a fake name that was as funny to the English speaker's ear as the real name. So, we always try to discourage storytellers from including people's full names in case that person or that person's family might not want it put out there like that. Now, before we move on, I just want to say a few words about Stamps.com. As you know, Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail. Using your own computer and printer, Stamps.com makes it easy. They send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. There's no need to lease an expensive postage meter. We use Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage, and that digital scale without long-term commitments. So go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a magnificently beautiful story from Portland-based storyteller Samira Sahibi. The last time we were in Portland, Samira ended the show with this remarkable story you'll hear in a little bit. But we also recently had on, for the first time ever, the wonderful New York-based storyteller Donna Bailey. And people were so thrilled with what a striking voice and presence Donna had that I said, oh my God, I want to have you back on the show as soon as possible. So here she is again. This is Donna Bailey with a story we call The Dinner Party. It was the late 1970s, and I found myself out of work. I had been working in television production on a show for CBS. It was called The Andros Targets, and it got canceled. So I registered with a temp agency. My first assignment was a week-long assignment at a bank on the Upper East Side in New York City. I was to stand inside the bank, close to the entrance, and hand out free stuff to the customers. And I had to wear this little sash. Easy job. Now, I was paired on this assignment with another woman, and she and I were about the same age. So I guess I probably was in my late 20s then. Lovely woman, naturally blonde, blue eyes, thin. We were both very thin. (laughs) We hit it off pretty quickly. And we were both contemplating an acting career. So we had that in common. But we also had another thing in common. We both loved to eat. And we both loved to cook. So every day, when we were there working together, between the customers, we'd talk about recipes and stuff. And she would say to me, 
oh, Donna, if you put the chicken into the oven and you pour this on it, I mean, I'm telling you, Donna, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I liked her a lot. She was funny. It's been a long time, so I can't remember her name, but let's just call her Becky. That Thursday, she invited me to have dinner to meet her husband at her apartment that Saturday, and she was going to fix her infamous pot roast. Her husband loved this dish. I was to bring the wine. I said, okay. So I showed up on Saturday at the appointed time, and the husband opened the door, and he was pretty much a male version of her. Very thin, blonde hair, blue eyes, very warm and friendly. We hit it off immediately. And we started talking movies and stuff because he was also contemplating an acting career. Both of us were De Niro fans. De Niro was really hot then. This was the 70s. He had just done Taxi Driver. He had done that. And and we had just seen uh, New York, New York with uh, Liza Minnelli. You know, we were into Pacino and all this stuff. We had a great time talking. And then we went in to sit down to eat. And the food was just gorgeous. It was just wonderful. I mean, that pot roast. I mean, I can still taste it. That's how good it was. And we're eating, and the wine is flowing, and then all of a sudden, the phone rings. Becky answers the phone. It was clear she was talking to someone who was going to be the fourth person at this dinner. I don't know, this made me nervous for some reason, and that's when I noticed that there had been a fourth place setting there at the table. I hadn't noticed that before. But I got a little nervous about that. Because I had been in situations where whites had invited me to certain parties, what have you, wanted me to meet somebody. It would be some black guy that was just totally incompatible with me. They figured, well, she's black, he's black, they should hit it off. Usually, we didn't. So we finished our meal, and then we went into the living room with our coffee. This fourth person said he was running late and he would be there in time for dessert. So, the husband, and let's call him Bob, he and I just hit it off again talking about movies and stuff. I'm sitting on the love seat. Bob is sitting in a pretty large armchair, sitting across from me. And Becky is on the floor next to my feet. And then I notice something odd. Becky is stroking my leg. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why is she doing that? So I moved over a little bit to get away from her. Bob is still chatting away. And lo and behold, Becky starts stroking my leg again. Now, at this point, I'm thinking, either this woman has a serious boundary problem or she's intoxicated. Is she just... Weird? Crazy? Definitely inappropriate. And I frowned at her, and then I moved over again. And that's when the doorbell rang. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, thank God. Even though I had been a little nervous about this black guy showing up, now I'm thinking, thank God he's showing up because these people are a little strange. Bob gets up to open the door. And there was the fourth person. Except he wasn't black. He's a white guy. He's very tall, I would say 6'3", 240 pounds, big guy. Introductions are made, and I know immediately that I'm in danger. There's a feeling when you're black, when you're in the presence of certain white people, when you know that you're in the presence of a white person who cannot stand black people. It's nothing they have to say. It's just a look. And he gave me that look. It was just unadulterated hatred. 
I mean, the hostility in this man's eyes was there. There was no question what was going on. He had a foreign accent. I couldn't tell whether it was Eastern European, maybe Russian. So let's call him Boris. Boris went across the room, and he sat in a small chair. And he sat there, and he glared at me. At this point, I'm on full alert. I'm looking to see where my purse is, where my coat is. I'm thinking, I may have to exit this place pretty fast. But I'm nervous. And I'm sitting upright in my seat. And then Bob leans forward and says, You know, Donna, we really like you. And I'm thinking, Okay, what do you mean by that? And then Becky starts up again, again. She starts stroking my leg. Now this time I'm angry. And I'm just getting ready to say to her, what the fuck are you doing? When Boris glares at me and he begins to sing. Oh, I wish I were in the land of cotton. Old times there are not forgotten. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. That's when I realized what the hell was going on. They had planned an orgy for that night. But he was letting me know he didn't like black people and I needed to get the hell out of there. And you know what? That's exactly what I did. I grabbed my purse, I grabbed my coat, and I ran out. And I ran down the stairs to the first landing. And then I heard them yelling at each other. And I knew that they were not going to run out to get me. So I stood there to listen. Becky. So what are you, some kind of racist? Are you racist? Boris. I ain't fucking no niggas. I ain't fucking no niggas. You know, niggas got diseases. Bob. Man, why didn't you tell us, man? I really wanted to fuck her. From the time she walked in the door, I wanted to fuck her, man. Boris. I'm telling you, man, you should have told me I don't fuck no niggas. Becky, you are really crazy. You are really crazy. We set this whole thing up. Bob, man, I got a hard on, man. What am I supposed to do with my hard on? Boris, fuck your wife, man. That's what you do with your hard on. Bob thought this was funny. Becky didn't. I'm not fucking anybody. I wanted to fuck her. And I stood there and I thought, all of you guys are crazy. I was disgusted. And I was angry. And I was humiliated. Not once did any of these people think about what I had wanted. I had been invited there under false pretenses. I thought this was going to be the beginning of a friendship. But they hadn't seen me that way at all. I wasn't a person to these people. This had all been set up and planned. This wasn't about friendship at all. There's a stereotype about black people that's very pervasive in this country, about black people, and particularly black women, that we just like to fuck all the time. And so I couldn't help but wonder if that's why I was invited. You know, a black girl, she would just drop her panties at the drop of a hat, right? And this has become a problem for me and a lot of other black women when we're dating white guys. Is the guy interested in me as a person? Or is it because of what he has heard about what black women are like in the bedroom? It's always there. There are some black women I know who never will ever date a white man. And so it was all about race and sex with these three people. What I also realized that even if that wasn't there, these were three really disgusting people. By this point, they're screaming at each other. And that's when I thought, you know what, let me get the hell out of here. I went down the stairs, I left the building, and I stood there. And I took in a deep breath. 
And then I looked up at the heavens and I said, Thank you, God. Sometimes bigots come in handy. You brought us here. For what? Why are we here? I thought we were going to eat. We are. So when are we going to eat? We're doing it for the pizza, Dave. You want whipped cream? Whipped cream. I don't even like whipped cream. Let's do something else first. Take your clothes off. Excuse me? (laughs) Woo. (laughs) Oh, my God. He wants to fuck you. You want me to fuck you? No. Aren't we going to have fun? Let's play Spin the Bottle. That's why I brought you here. Okay, let's play. Maybe after dinner. After dinner. Right now is your chance to go swing. It's okay to sit on the sofa? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No, 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 no. I was a bedwetter well into grade school. And I kind of liked it. (laughs) At nights, my mother would pull up this unusually large diaper, and I would step into it. And I would hold on to it as she would fasten it. And it was this beautiful moment of watching her take care of me. And there was no judgment. And we had this moment of connecting, and it was really like the only time she would ever touch me. So I looked forward to it every day, and we would just talk as if it was like the normalest thing to put a diaper on a six-year-old. It wasn't that my mother wasn't a kind person or that she didn't love me. She just showed her love by doing. She was a doer. She did a lot for me. She got pregnant while having two teenagers, and it was because a physician suggested it would help with her health condition. By this time, my father had more money, so they were excited to do things right this time around. So she started sewing every article of clothing that I would wear, my bedding, even my diapers had engravings on them. And she had ordered um, boxes of Ovaltine to be shipped to Iran. And um, she had signed me up for private school. So there was all this expectation about my greatness. And so I came along, and I was this, like, scrawny whiner, and I cried a lot, and I got sick all the time. And on top of it, I was very fidgety, very antsy kid. And so they wondered if I had tapeworms, and they took me to the doctor, and I did. And then we treated them, and then I got them again and again. And then my grandma started speculating that because I've had them for so long, that I had the spirit of a tapeworm, a dancing worm in my butt, that was making me fidgety. (laughs) I think the diagnostic term for the dancing worm in the butt would be ADHD. (laughs) I had it. But I wasn't the only restless one in Iran at that time. There was rumblings of a revolution. There was civil unrest everywhere. It wasn't very threatening, but there was demonstrations. It was orchestrated by the University of Tehran students, and other progressives would join. And in order to get like the less progressive to join as well, they started incorporating some Islamic slogans. And one of the activities that we were encouraged to do was to go to the rooftops because they're flat in Tehran, because we sleep there at nights in the summers. We're supposed to go to the rooftops and chant Allahu Akbar, which is an Arabic phrase for God is great. And we had to use Arabic because Allah does not speak Persian. And the point of it was that if you go to the rooftop and you, instead of protesting, you just say, God is great, you couldn't get arrested. And if everyone did it, then no one would get caught. But there wasn't a lot of buy-in. However, my mother was getting nervous about it because she was sort of tender and very nervous about my sister because she was a college student. And to the outside world, my mother presented as an incredibly confident person. She was gifted in math, and she also had a spectacular voice. In fact, we wouldn't be able to go anywhere without my mother being asked to sing, and my father would accompany her, and they were so impressive. 
it was such a stark contrast to how she was at home. She was very serious. She was not at all entertaining. She didn't have a sense of humor, and she wasn't very affectionate. In fact, she kind of had a temper on her. One time she was uh, gutting a chicken in the kitchen and called me over because it was a learning moment. And she's like, do you see these eggs? And it was this progression of pink balls, like beads that got smaller and smaller until they disappeared. And she's like, these were going to be eggs. And the biggest one was going to come out and it was going to look like an egg. And the hen would lay on it and it would hatch into a chick. And I was so excited as a six-year-old. And I asked for it. I asked for the egg. And a couple hours later, when she called me and I wouldn't go over, she started looking for me. And she found that I was sitting on the egg waiting for it to hatch. And she realized that I had soiled the Persian carpet with blood, including my butt. And so I got a spanking for that, which to me felt like, well, that was out of nowhere. But to her, it made sense. So in the summers, I would try to get away. Well, for one, I wanted to play with Barbies, and I didn't have any. I just had two toys. And we had money, so I don't understand what's up with that. So we had a dog. I had a dog that was battery-operated, so I would carry it around, pretend it was real. And then I had this blonde, big baby that would sing jingle bells in German. (laughs) They got that in a European trip. I couldn't get into it. I wanted a Barbie. So I would go to my cousin's houses and I would play with them. And and they would have like snacks and chocolate and their moms were friendly. And I started to like have a little mom envy. Like, wow, I want a friendly mom. Because I was scared of my mom. But eventually the summer would end and I would come home and I would be faced with what was really wrong at our house, which was my mother's health condition. Um, My mother had grand mal seizures and no, pregnancies don't cure that. I don't know what that guy was thinking. (laughs) She would get sick in the mornings. It would be usually upon rising. So we would never wake her up. We would make sounds. I wouldn't go wake her in the middle of the night. And if I woke up and I went to my door and it was locked, that meant mom had gotten sick and the adults were taking care of her because it was so traumatic. They didn't want me to see it. So I would just kind of wait and I was a good girl and I would just wait for them to wake up or to let the door open and let me out. And this was an understanding I was born into. I have no memory of it being any different way. And the door would open and then I wouldn't ask and they wouldn't offer and we'd all pretend like nothing had happened, like this was just another morning, we just have breakfast. But one morning, there was something a little different. There was a scream. And I ran to the door, and it was locked. But this time, I just couldn't relax. I started pacing the room, and I was reading The Little Prince at the time, and I just kept reading it over and over, and it wasn't working. And I was like, oh, I can't breathe. Maybe these pajamas are getting too tight. So I changed out of my pajamas into something loose, And this is something I'd never worn. I was like really scrawny and the skirt was falling off my hips. So I made a decision in that moment to do something I'd never done, which was to disobey and leave during lockout. So I opened the balcony door and the shame in being disobedient was such that my head just hang heavy and I was tiptoeing. And I went over to my parents' bedroom and I tiptoed just looking at my toes and I went to the dresser and I opened the jewelry box and I got the safety pins out. I was lowering the jewelry box lid ever so gently as to not make a sound. And this moment, I saw my reflection in the mirror and it shocked me. And then I saw behind me was my mother's lifeless body on the bed. And I knew she was dead. I ran back to my room. I pounded on the door. I said, I know what's happened. You need to let me out. And they did, in shock. There was already mourners rushing over to the house. The sight of me would just instigate more tears in people. And I just remember these elderly women would just grab me and pull me into their sweaty cleavages. And I could just smell their stench of B.O. And I would just be wet from their tears. And they would whisper things I couldn't hear. And 
they would say idiotic things like she's in a better place or it's probably for the best. And I just, just so wish I could have a voice and ask them all to leave and stop invading our house. There was around 100 people within an hour. So the time came for the body to be moved. And at that point, I asked to see her. And that was met with a lot of resistance. It was just too heart-wrenching. Just like looking at me made people cry. So I insisted this time. And they said, okay. So an uncle said I would take her because my own family couldn't handle it. And so they took me to the corner room where she was. We opened the door and the curtains were drawn and there was a candle. (sighs) There were people praying for her soul. There was a lady reading the Quran. A couple of other people were just chanting and rocking. And my father was a staunch atheist, so he couldn't have anything to do with that. He just left. My uncle set me down. Up until that moment, I wasn't sure I really loved my mother. It was unfathomable because she attacked me in the night before. And I couldn't believe that that body was just lifeless. So I started to touch her because it just felt so natural to touch her face. And so with my little hands, I started to touch her face and caress her hair. And she looked so peaceful. She never looked so calm and beautiful in real life. She was utterly at peace. And the sight of me touching my mother was too unbearable. And so the whole room broke into sobs. It had been hours since my mother died, and I just couldn't cry. And that was one of my specialties. (laughs) So it was time to leave, and I noticed her rings, and I asked to take them. It was like I would watch her hands touch things and do things all day. And I had this longing that she would touch me, and then she wouldn't. And here she was. She had no choice. I had her hands in my little hands. And they were so exquisitely beautiful. She had these noteworthy, beautiful hands that everybody kept staring at and complimenting her on. And I held them in my little hands. And as I was removing the rings, I started to feel this pressure. Like, oh my God, I have to remember this sensation because I'm never going to feel it again. And the pressure to memorize that sensation was so great that that's when I broke, and that's when I started bawling. As I started bawling, and I was kissing her hands, and I was holding on to her, I was removed from the body, and she was taken. And I wasn't allowed to attend the funeral, because it's pretty intense, the Shia tradition. The next few days were a blur. That night, I had a really hard time sleeping. There were like 30 people sleeping in our house. I could hear the chants of Allahu Akbar louder than ever before. It's as if all of Tehran knew my mother had died and they were all in their rooftops talking to me, telling me God is great and I wasn't having it. And so the next night the chants got louder and the next night louder and it grew so loud that a week after my mother died, the revolution broke and the people of Iran overthrew the Shah and now there was chaos outside and inside and schools closed, and I had no structure. I just wandered around in my sweatpants for months while the government was trying to figure out curriculums for schools and how to incorporate religion into school systems now and rewriting history books. That kind of stuff takes time. And during that time, I got very contemplative because I felt like, well, who dies in their sleep? Like, it must have been something I've done. It's because I didn't clean my room and I wasn't doing my homework. Maybe she didn't love me enough to stay. And all those thoughts that are apparently normal for children. And then school finally opened and I had something to do. So when schools opened, about a third of my classmates were missing. All the Baha'is had fled. They had to. And then most of the Jews and the Armenians had also left. And these were the kids that I'd been in school with since kindergarten. And they all left without saying goodbye. And that was very traumatic. And that was also the last year that um, boys and girls were allowed to attend schools. 
at the same schools. And so after that, we were segregated. For me, it was, um, I started to develop fevers at home and my grades started dropping. And I would invoke these fevers that would push me to delirium. And I started having these morbid fantasies of dying and reuniting with her and feeling whole. And I liked that feeling so much, the fevers became chronic. I started to really question, like I never knew that I loved my mother, honestly. Like I just thought we weren't that close. And I was so innocent that I didn't realize that even though she had this presence around the house, that she just took care of things and wasn't fun and dynamic, her loss completely tore apart my family. We completely dissolved. She was the glue that held us together. Within a few years of her death, we dispersed and ended up in different continents and never formed a family again. And I outgrew my morbid tendencies and channeled my aching for maternal love into my professions in human services for a number of years. Then the time came for me to experience motherhood, and I had built it up my entire life into something that I couldn't live up to. And so at every turn, I declined. And with every decision, I felt tormented. I felt broken by it. But it happened over and over, so then I knew that it wasn't just something I was ever going to be ready for. And as for connecting to my mother, I just, I no longer wish I were dead or have any delusions that she's going to like be waiting for me with open arms somewhere. I connect to her through my love for singing, through the short temper we share, <laughs> and by wearing the ring that I took off her finger. Thank you. is all for this week's episode folks this is the great patty griffin behind me now and we just heard from samira sahibi remarkable story wonderful storyteller based in portland that was at the last risk live show that we did there in portland samira sahibi if you get a chance to hear her tell at any of the portland-based storytelling shows go out and see her now i've said it once and i'll say it again if you have a Halloween story or a holidays, you know, winter holidays story, a Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's sort of story, pitch us. In fact, from anywhere in the world, you can pitch us because we can record stories remotely. But if you live near New York City or near Los Angeles, you should point that out in your pitch because we might even be able to put you live on stage at our October show in New York or Los Angeles 
or our December show in New York or Los Angeles. So if you have a really scary story that would be good for Halloween or a really cheery kind of interesting holiday sort of story that would be good for December, pitch us. You can write to me directly at kevin at show.com or just check out the submissions page at wrist-show.com slash submissions. Now, I'm going to let you know where Risk is appearing live next. On September 16th, we are back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On September 26th, we're having our very special body storytelling slash Risk show. So, on September 26th, in Brooklyn at the Bell House, body storytelling from San Francisco hosted by Dixie De La Tour, and Risk are teaming up for an evening of very kinky stories. So come on out, Brooklyn, on September 26th. That's going to be one hell of a show. On October 21st, we're back in Los Angeles at the bootleg, and that's the one where we're kind of interested in seeing if people have scary stories. So you can still pitch us for that show. October 21st, in Los Angeles at the bootleg on October 22nd, Risk is appearing at Littlefield in Brooklyn. That's an evening of scary stories. Like I said before, you can pitch us for that. So on October 22nd, we will be at Littlefield in Brooklyn. And here's a bunch of November dates that you can pitch us for. November 3rd, Baltimore, Maryland. The theme that night is Obsession. November 9th, Chicago. The theme is Revealing. November 10th, Madison, Wisconsin. The theme is Huge. November 11th, Detroit, Michigan. The theme is Surprise. And on December 2nd, we're in Phoenix. The theme is Jaw-Dropping. If you live in any of those cities and you'd like to pitch us, Go to the submissions page at wrist-show.com slash submissions. There's a video there that tells you how to pitch. There's an audio file you can listen to that gives you all sorts of helpful tips as well. It's very helpful. Wrist-show.com slash submissions. If you have friends who live in your town who might have great stories to share, or if you run a storytelling show of your own in one of those towns, reach out to us. Connect us with people. I am always easy to find at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. When you forget my love